Hello everyone, welcome to today's show. My name is Spencer Walsh. We got a great one for you today as always. You're listening to Newsflash. If you're new, welcome. If you're old, also welcome. We have on the show for you today stocks plunging as bonds signal a rising turn about growth slowing down a possible recession beginning. Also, guys, folks, the guards, Jeffrey Epstein prison, they were just asleep. I swear to you, they were just asleep. They weren't even trying. Just that simple. Uh, Steve King, find out what he thinks about rape today. That's a lot of fun. Gotta love that. Talk about ICE raids. We're gonna talk about them as a win. Really, what they were was a win for corporate exploitation. Um, comments from Ken Cuccinelli about immigration, open borders, and Texas, folks. Texas. We're talking about Texas possibly being the next site for, yeah, you heard me right, a blue wave. What? Yeah, so that's going to be all on today's show. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Um, yeah, I hope you are doing very well. But, guys, let's be honest. The S&P 500, the, the Dow Jones, is not doing very well today. As trade war worries really hammered financial markets again on Wednesday, as data from Germany and China showed trouble for manufacturing-reliant economies, while the bond market renewed fears of an American recession. So that could could be coming pretty soon, and... I mean, deregulate. We, here's what we've seen um, in the past few years, at least. Deregulation and taxes for the rich. What have we seen in the few years before every recession ever? Deregulation and taxes for the rich, at least in modern times, I guess you could say. So, I mean, it was bound to happen. Like, this is the way it works. Republican gets a power, ta- uh, does deregulation, cuts taxes, and then sooner or later, things get out of control and the economy crashes. The next financial meltdown, it's coming. It is undoubtedly coming, and it's coming very soon. It's just that simple. Um, and as things, as well as things are right now, we're about to see a big flip very, very soon. So, I mean, I may be saying this a little bit late. It could be we are just beginning with this downward turn. This could be the beginning of the financial meltdown. But I think we'll definitely see it happen in the relatively near future. At least really see some worsening conditions probably by the end of this year. That's just my prediction uh but yeah stocks and commodities tumbled in europe and the united states as risk averse investors race the safety of government bonds pushing bond prices sharply higher and yields which move in the opposite direction to low levels not seen in years on wednesday the s&p 500 fell 2.93 percent led by a steep drop in the energy sector retail shares also fell sharply after macy's posted lower quarterly results and shares of large technology companies sensitive to the outlook for the trade war, obviously that's manufacturing, that's China, that's also Germany as well. Uh, that like p- people that have uh, companies that have businesses and factories in China, they are feeling it as well. Uh, the drop reflected a rapid shift in sentiment coming a day after the market posted solid gains on Tuesday. That 1.5% gain had been driven by the White House decision to narrow the scope of the next round of tariffs to spare American consumers during the holiday shopping season, which is coming up. Believe it or not, oh my God. Crazy, just at the 4th of July, it feels like. Uh, but there is increasing evidence that the fight between the two largest economies over trade, technology, and economic dominance has already done significant damage to the world's economy. Earlier Wednesday, the German government reported that the country's economy shrank in the quarter that ended in June. That'll be the second quarter. Um, 
from March to June, that is. Uh, the German economy, the Eurozone's largest, has been particularly vulnerable to the trade war because uh, between the U.S. and China because of Germany's dependence on manufacturing and exports, according to the New York Times. A second consecutive quarter of decline would mean Germany was in a recession. So it could be coming up, possible reception, recession, and we just don't know. The big thing is, how big is it going to be? How how big will these tentacles um, fall like what? What's gonna happen? Are people gonna have to fire? Uh, is it gonna really reach down to normal people? The answer is yes, probably. But yeah, so that's definitely, definitely something to watch. Um, and I do want to give you kind of the little bit of the outlook about what we are seeing here and why this is so disturbing the way it is. Um, some really some of the things that you should ta- pay attention to. And some reasons why we could be heading down the wrong path. Um, uh, yeah, so we start with Exhibit 1 of an incoming recept- uh, uh, recession, which is the yield curve. Uh, it's a chart that measures two basic numbers, but which sounds very sophisticated, has inverted in the UK for the first time since 2007. A yield curve inversion is traditionally a recession warning because it means that the investors expect the near future to be worse than the far future. Memorize this phrase, the yield curve inversion. So yeah, uh, now you're going to sound smart on the next part of that you go to, which is going to be taking place in a homeless shelter. So have fun with that. It's gonna be, guys, it's, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Also, it's probably not going to be fine because the yield curve inverted, guys. Uh, yeah, so... It is very, very distressing. It's typically again, it's a sign of a yield, a yield curve coming. Uh, yield curve inversion is normally again a sign of a very, very soon impending uh, um, recession. But wait, you said the UK. What about the US? Yes, it is. It's, it's inverted here too. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, the yield curve has been inverted here since the first time since 2005. And that, again, that has to do with um, the yield on the 10-year Treasury bonds, Diplo, the yield on the two-year Treasury bonds. Um, so they are, um, they, yeah, people. pretty much people want safety, investors want safety, and they want it now. And that's why they're going for the quick two-year bonds. Uh, and the 10-year bonds have fallen, and this happened, yeah, just today, actually. Um yeah, so the yield curve, again, very, very much down. Uh, so that is something that no one is looking forward to that. Um, Germany's economy contracted in the past quarter, and Europe's only responsible nation is teetering on the edge of a recession. Uh, Argentina's stock market fell 40% in a single day this week, one of the biggest day drops of the national stock market in modern history. The percentage of big investors expecting recession is now at an eight-year high. Bank of America puts a chance of a U.S. recession in the next 12 months at one in three, which is vague and goofy, but in the economic forecaster language, it's quite a strong warning. So 33% chance of a recession there coming from uh, Bank of America. <laughs> and yeah, things, it's, it's not good. It's not good. I mean, there, if you look back, and I'm sure people, once it happens, yeah, again, keyword here, once it already happens, people are going to look back and say, oh, there's so many things we should have done. But again, Two things that almost always lead to a recession. Wall Street deregulation and cutting taxes for the wealthy, which Donald Trump has done both of. So, yeah, I mean, happened with Bush, happened with Reagan. Like, it is very common. It happened with um, 
what's his name? Hoover. Um, anyway, yeah, so economic analysts say that an escalation of U.S. trade war with China would likely propel the U.S. into, respe- into a recession within the year, so nothing to worry about as long as you trust the administration to be reasonable, wise, and prudent. So pretty much they will escalate the trade war, and that will speed up our hasty decline. Um, and when assumptions about how the world works are shattered, a global downturn is often the result. Uh, the good news is that this recession will afflict the entire global economy, so there will be nowhere to hide, which is good uh, for some reason. And if you're looking to, for something to distract you from this anxiety that I may have given you in the next, in the first, uh, what is it, 8 minutes, 50 seconds of today's show, just remember... Um, CEOs are paid 278 times the salary of their average employee. So, yeah. Uh, 278 times. Wow. Yeah, that is quite something. Uh, yeah, we now turn to something that's also quite something. Jeffrey Epstein. It is... It, it's going off the rails, folks. It really is. Yeah, so you may wonder if you haven't heard, what in the world is going on now with Mr. Jeffrey Epstein, the deceased? Uh, Following Tuesday's revelation that the wardens of the Metropolitan Correctional Center have been temporarily reassigned and two guards in charge of Epstein have been placed on leave, the New York Times reported on Tuesday night that the two guards for the jail's special housing unit fell asleep for some or all of the three hours, a period in which they didn't check on Epstein at all. Checkups, again, are supposed to be required every 30 minutes. If that wasn't bad enough, the two guards are allegedly falsified those records, which seems like a crime. I think, especially probably should be charged when dealing with someone like Jeffrey Epstein and he let him kill himself, uh, supposedly, if that's what happened. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Again, because you don't even, like, it seems like it is just, it, it's getting even, like, I don't know. I don't, I'm searching for the right word to describe how this looks, but, like, at this point, you could really just as easily say, oh, they were paid to look the other way. Um, they while whoever like snuck in and murdered them like it, it's it's no problem they just let him in and they falsify the records for that guy after like we don't know uh and it's it's kind of insane it's, i think it's definitely fair to think um think that he didn't kill he didn't kill himself and that he was murdered it's certainly certainly possible um and there's some foul play involved um apparently shrieking was heard in his cell the morning he died i mean i don't know Normally, when you commit suicide, you don't shriek. Um, I mean, if he was judging on the method that he chose to kill himself, I mean, maybe some choking, maybe some, uh, uh, I don't know, I don't want to be too graphic, but like if you're just choking, that would make sense. Gagging, but shrieking seems a little weird. Um, Yeah, one of the staff members was a former correctional officer, according to the New York Times, would take in a different position at the detention center that did not involve guarding detainees. He had volunteered working in his correctional office for the extra overtime pay, a law enforcement official, and an employee at the jail said. Uh, a second officer, who was a woman who was assigned to the wing, had been ordered to work overtime because the jail was short-staffed. A little, little weird. A little weird. Again, a little weird. Um, while the two as-of-yet-identified guards have been placed on leave, the MCC warden, Lamin Nindyai, have been transferred to a Bureau of Prisons office in Philadelphia pending investigation. Uh, Attorney General William Barr, who reassigned NDI uh, and put the two guards on leave, announced Saturday that both the FBI and the DOJ's Inspector General would 
be investigated investigating the prison and how Epstein's death occurred. So that's what they say. They're gonna really they're gonna go hard, they're gonna investigate it, and it's gonna be it's gonna be a real change in, in the way we do things, folks. But again, he is like he's deeply connected to this stuff. His dad hired Epstein at the Dalton school. Like his dad brought Epstein he, his dad pretty much gave us Epstein. It's it's just that simple. Uh, he brought he brought him into the Dalton School. From there, he went to Bear Stearns. From there, he went to managing a hedge fund, shall we say? Like it's that kind of like association with the elites that is very very clear. I mean, so that makes me think that there's like I don't I don't even know what's going on here. I just really really don't. And it seems like um, this story seems to be very like unbelievable, knowing what's going on, what are the stakes here, who's implicated, et cetera, et cetera. But again, at the same time, it could be the case. I mean, I don't even know. I would really like to see this kind of investigated and investigated well, but I don't even know if it could just the investigation. So that's just, it's kind of spinning there. So Barr said, I was appalled. Indeed, the entire department was, and frankly, angry to learn of the MCC's failure to adequately secure this prisoner. We are now learning of serious irregularities at this facility and are deeply concerned, and that, that are deeply concerning and that demand a thorough investigation. Um, Barr said during a speech before the Fraternal Order of Police Conference in New Orleans on Monday, the API and the Office of Inspector General are already doing just that. We will get to the bottom of this. Uh, and we will hold people accountable for this failure. So, I mean, he's definitely taking the, he's definitely taking the strong, strong look at this. He's definitely taking the kind of, um, at least outside, um, external tough position. And I mean, a lot of people wonder, and I think probably one of the most consistent questions after this, um, Epstein death has been what happens what happens next what legal action will be taken and that probably will come in the form of Ghislaine Maxwell um she is really she's really had a rough rough time uh and I think really especially after her her good friend's death and the thing is she pretty much I think we can already say that she knows almost everything about uh, what Epstein did. She worked with him. She was kind of his procurer. She was his madam, I guess you could say. Um, getting people uh, into the right positions, uh, get, like getting the girls from the Victoria's Secret, bringing them to the rich and powerful men, uh, recruiting girls in South Florida for Jeffrey Epstein. She probably knows absolutely everything. And she probably would be almost as good as getting Epstein himself because she, I think, what we know... From what we know, they were close. They used to even date. Uh, she probably knows a hell of a lot about Epstein. Epstein. I really gather... I mean, I'm sure there is some things, but probably not much that uh, Maxwell didn't know that uh, Epstein would have. So she's definitely a good a good bet. So authorities really cannot find her, though. According to people familiar with the investigation, authorities have had trouble lo- locating Maxwell, who's believed to be living abroad. She's not been charged with any crimes, and she denies wrongdoing. Jeff Berman, U.S. Attorney in New York, said the investigation was ongoing. Uh, investment banker Evan Ewan Relly told New York magazines to cut that Maxwell worked with Epstein. Every pretty girl in New York in those days, Ghislaine would invite to Jeffries. Her job was to jazz up his social life and get the fashionable young women to show up. Some accusers have claimed uh, Maxwell recruited girls and also participated in sexual abuse. So it's she's she's no 
She's not like she's uh, by any means a peripheral player. Jislene was in love with Je- Jeffrey the way she was in love with her father. She always thought if she did one more thing to please him, he would marry her. So that's uh, interesting looking into their dynamics there. Um, yeah. Apparently, Maxwell's actual father, which is a disgraced media mogul who was like working with Rupert Murdoch, I think, I don't know. Um, his name is Robert Maxwell. Uh, he owned a lot of papers in Britain, I believe, here as well. It was similar to Epstein in some ways, uh, which is kind of gross. She's some kind of like a type that she's attracted to. Um, wow. So, yeah. when I, uh, The Vanity, Vanity Fair source continued. When I asked him what she... Th- she th- when I asked what she thought of the underage girl, she looked at me uh, and said, they're nothing, these girls. They are trash. Wow. Uh, that's Vicky Ward uh, tweeting that out. At Jezebel, Tracy Clark Flory argued that it's pretty much her image as a socialite that protected Maxwell. With Maxwell, apparently, uh, the additional psychology wrench of her social standing, the lady of the house who was long entangled with Jeffrey Epstein, reads the New York Times headline, the socialite on Epstein arms, said New York's magazine, she's not only a woman, but a lady woman, not just a woman, but a socialite. Both stories with her proximity lead with her proximity to wealth and fame, the private jets, the mansions, townhouses, and royalty, and the film screenings, the store openings, the fashion shows, for turning the ghastly abuse allegations. Here, it seems there are dual classifiers of both gender and class that are different, to, difficult to reconcile with the allegations of sexual abuse. Uh, we are culturally biased on multiple fronts against making any sense of Maxwell and the allegations against her. We lack the appropriate tools to understand. Maybe as this case moves forward, we will start to build them. There are plenty of other people investigators could question too, for example, like Prince Andrew, Elon Musk, Bill Clinton, and Donald Trump. Some of the most powerful people in the world uh, are involved in this case, which makes it so hard for me to um, believe, let's just say, that this is going to be done right. Uh, yeah, so... That is, it's very, very disturbing and very, 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 very uh, chilling. I think we'll definitely be keeping a uh, close eye on this story, just to say the least, as time moves on. Let's talk about Steve King. He's best known as a super racist, but let's let it not be forgotten. The Iowa Republican also has terrible views on just about everything else. For instance, here's a man coming in hot with the rare rape and incest are so bad. Are rape and uh, sorry, are rape and incest so bad when you think about it? Take you, you don't really see that. Um, according, she, she spoke to the Des Moines Register uh, and said the following: "This is quite a thing. Uh, what if we went back through all the family trees and just pulled out anyone who was a product of rape or incest? Would there be any population of the world left if we did that? Considering all the wars and all the rapes and pillages that happened throughout all these different nations, I know that I can't say." that I was not a part of a product of that. So, yeah. Yeah, let, let that sink in. Uh, <laughs> Republican Party. Yeah, everyone just rapes, and uh, everyone's a product of rape, if you really think about it. <laughs> Which is like, it's quite something. It's quite something. Let's just say that. Uh, yeah, so that's kind of uh, people are, what people are... Um, really thinking of about today there but that was really the buzz steve king essentially saying that just everyone's product of rape everyone rapes it's all all cool it's very very best maybe they're not pretty much seem to seeming really to defend rape and incest on that and i mean he is really not so hot right now uh just recently what was this a month ago um 
the extreme relations congressman was apparently not allowed to ride on Air Force One with President Trump during his campaign visit to Iowa. Uh, he represents the 4th District. He's notorious, again, for his unapologetic white nationalist views. He was kicked off committees in the House of Representatives for saying he doesn't understand why phrases like white supremacists are so offensive. Uh, on Trump's trip to Iowa this week, King allegedly asked to join the president's entourage in Air Force One. It was turned down. Iowa Senator Joni Ernst and Nebraska Senator Deb Fisher were both allowed on the aircraft. So, yeah, it, that's why it helps to not be uh, a white supremacist. Not just, At least not just be that open about it because then Donald Trump can still hang out with you uh, because he's the only one who apparently allow, is allowed to say racist things anymore. Uh, King says he's running again in 2020 despite the lack of support from his party. He has some primary challengers as well, including Randy Feenstra, who's a strong Trump supporter as well. So who knows if he's going to get past that primary. He could be a much better target for Democrats than this Feenstra guy if he does. So... Yeah, it's a, he'll definitely be a good scout for Democrats, I think, if they're able to take out Steve King, who's been around there for a long time. They came so close in 2018. Uh, if he's able, to, if they're able to do that, that could be a huge, 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 huge victory. Thank you so much for staying with us this episode of Newsflash. We're talking, moving into the kind of a primarily immigration portion of our show today, where we're talking about a lot of stuff, immigration. We start, though, with these ICE raids. Uh, I think we really think have not gotten enough coverage, get, uh, given all the crazy thing that's, things that have been going on as of late. But, I mean, yeah, the, the Mississippi ICE raids at the poultry plants, they were really just awful. And there's a great article about them today in the New Republic about how they really were a win for corporate exploitation. And I kind of want to read this. It's from Adrian Carrasquillo. Uh, August 12, 2019, it was written. Um, yeah, so in Canton, Mississippi, where they account for only 5% of the population, Latinos were often seen but not heard. Their children would translate for them at a parent-teacher conference as generations of kids have done for their immigrant parents. That changed last week as a sweeping immigration raid of seven poultry plants swept up 680 undocumented workers, leaving children sobbing and wives tearfully saying goodbye to their husbands through chain-link fences as authorities processed workers. For many, it was their first day of school, one that uh, some ended sleeping in a gym after the pre their parents were detained. On Sunday, Trump officials conceded the time was unfortunate, coming on the heels of the white supremacist hate crime that targeted Mexicans, shattering the El Paso community and leaving Latinos across the country fearing the political climate that will lead to future violence aimed at people who look like them. And I think they really are some of the most pe some of the most endangered people in the world because you see, especially in this country, because you see what people are willing to do uh, to them, and it's not, it's not even just rhetoric at this point. The rhetoric inspires people like the El Paso shooter. The rhetoric inspires people uh, to go out and do those horrible things at home. But the thing that a lot of people, because everyone, everyone agrees that that is bad. What he did there is bad. But what people don't, I don't think, realize is the kind of idea that 
there is another angle to this. There's really a two-pronged attack. Um, and there is... Um, I, it, it, the, the one prong obviously is from people, the homegrown white supremacists, and the other is from the government. It's from ICE. It's from these people who um, unnecessarily, cruelly, and through exaggerations and interpretations of the law that drive up like like they've created their new their own directories they've written their own memos this government has to go after immigrants in a way that no one republican or democrat has done before it's just as simple they've attacked this community um to inspire fear and as i said i believe on the last episode of this podcast um it's not about uh curtailing legal immigration it's about sorry it's not about curtailing legal immigration it's not about quote-unquote following the law um it's about stopping the flood of people not who don't look white from entering this country like this is a white government it's just like there's no no true minority representation uh in this government there's no perspective uh that would bet like sure you got People, you got minorities in in some government positions, not very many government positions, but I'm sure there are minorities working in the border patrol in some way. Uh, Latinos working in the border patrol, but the thing is, a lot of people don't like. like there's very few people in positions of power who actually have a true understanding for this community and are willing to come in and represent. Uh, this Latino community, especially in Border Patrol. What you have is people like Carla Provost who are joining these groups that make jokes about Latinos dying. So how are these people supposed to feel safe? And how are we looking on the outside supposed to say that, okay, this is a group that is run for the benefit and the protection of Latinos, not just to pretty much wash our hands of them, kind of like the British treating the Irish in the potato famine. Like it was, again, it was some sort of, I think this is a little bit different because there is a level of fear. There is, there is an active level of repellence. Uh, but the way that's kind of gets, I think the, the active level of hate and fear really comes through the most. And that's uh, other prong I talked about kind of with the, the homegrown white supremacists. But the way our government wants to do this, I think is to kind of really just, Wash their wash their hands of this. Like they want to wash their hands of this problem. They want to deter, deter, deter. Not find ways to accept. Not find ways to bring people into the fold. To it's the way to uh, slam the fold shut on them and crush them, crush their families, crush their lives. Even if they've already been here legally and are working hard to create a better future for their families. And by the way, helping the community while doing it. So that is, I think, very, very, very disturbing. Uh, and here's the other angle in this. Uh, the plants that were raided include those owned by Coke Foods, which in August 2018 paid $3.75 million to settle a lawsuit alleging racial and sexual harassment against Latino workers at these plants. The suit alleged the supervisor touched and or made sexual sexually aggressive comments to Hispanic female employees, hit Hispanic employees, and charged many of them money for normal everyday work activities. As part of the settlement, Coke Foods, no relation to the Republican mega donors, uh, agreed to create a 24-hour bilingual hotline for work complaints. While there is no currently no evidence the raid was connected, the history of exploitation here has made the raids feel especially cruel. 
and activists worry about the example of Canton that will also have devastating effects for communities elsewhere, uh, all contrary to right-wing talking points without having any meaningful effect on migration. Like, this doesn't have any effect on migration. It's not going to stop whoever random Guatemalan from coming to our border. Like, they're not going to, this is not going to deter them. It's not, and that's not the point. As I said before in my diatribe that I just went off on, it is about stopping and it's not about stopping. It's about terrorizing, I think. It's really about terrorizing. It's about getting the fear into these people's hearts to know that they're not welcome here. And by this government, they are not welcome here. It's just that simple. I mean, through these raids, they've been ratcheted up. Um, and it's it's about flowing, uh, stopping the flow of legal immigration, making it harder for it to get here. If, and that is the perfect segue... If you look the right way. I mean, if you're, as Trump said, if you're in Europe, come all over here. Why don't we get more um, migrants from Norway, he said in his famous asshole countries rant. I mean, and Ken Cuccinelli today, the head of some other draconian border patrol agency or whatever, is immigration chief, I guess you could say, acting director of Citizen Immigration Services, cannot stop reinterpreting the poem about immigrants engraved on the Statue of Liberty in order to justify the Trump administration's new cruel public charge. So, uh, new cruel public charge rule. So, he tried again Tuesday night on CNN where he explained the 1983 poem uh, in the U.S. talking uh, about taking your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be, th- you to be free. That you, You're tired, you're poor, you're huddled masses. That poem that is famous and used by a lot of activists, a lot of people on the left to defend the idea of immigration is that only applies to Europeans. Because legal immigration is okay, but you have to be doing it coming in from the right place. You have to be doing it coming from England, Norway, whatever the, place, whatever the case may be, Italy, whatever the case may be. You cannot be doing it coming in from an area where there are people who are different from us. Uh, they have their basic, their barbaric, whatever the case may be. It's, it's a tale, really, as old as time, and it's coming back again right in front of our eyes. Um, he says, well, of course, that poem was referring to people coming back from Europe where they had class-based societies uh, where people were considered wretched if they weren't in the right class. And it was written one year after the first federal public charge rule was written that says any person who is able to take care of himself without becoming a public charge would be inadmissible, uh, which, again, pretty much a rule to make sure that no pores can get into the United States. So here's a clip of him actually saying that. Uh, we have to play here. Just give me a brief, brief, brief uh, minute. That it's very important to be able to stand on your own two feet. A yes. lot of people may support you and respect your saying that, but the poem doesn't say that, right? The poem that's I on the bring- well, you- An NPR reporter did, and now you have. Okay, I didn't bring it up. So I'll here he is talking to CNN about it. So questions. I'm going to give Please you a substantive intelligence. Okay, Who, however it came up, you said, give me your tired and your poor. Okay, who can stand on their own two feet and who will not become a public charge. That's what you said. I just played it. The poem reads, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of the teeming shore. Send these, the homeless tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. And what you're saying here is it's not about Europeans. poor refuse, right? That's what the poem says America's supposed to stand for. So what do you think America stands for? Well, of course, that poem was referring back to people coming from Europe where they had class-based societies where people were considered wretched if they weren't in the right class. 
and it was introduced, it was written one year, one year after the first federal public charge rule was written that says, and I'll quote it, any person unable to take care of himself without becoming a public charge, unquote, would be inadmissible or in the terms that my agency deals with, uh, they can't do what's called adjusting status, getting a green card, becoming legal permanent residents. Same exact time, Aaron, same exact time. In the year it went on the Statue of Liberty, 1903, another federal law was passed expanding the elements of public charge yeah. by Congress. This is a. I mean, when my family came here, they came here as, as crofters from Scotland, right? They, could, they had no education. They had nothing. Right. But I am here because they were allowed and I'm an anchor on CNN. Right. right. So I'm just and saying I, I wouldn't be here. My Italian grandfather sponsored his two cousins to come here. This is a tradition that many of our families, yours and mine, can point to. Right. This is not an exclusionary. Uh, no, no, uh, no. But what I'm saying is I would have been excluded. I don't factor. know about you. Yeah, and I mean that's the, that's the kind of point here. It's such a mind blowing thing that he's saying like, oh, it's going to be okay. It it doesn't matter. Um, like it'll it'll work for you. It'll be fine. It's gonna it's gonna be it's gonna be totally all right. It's no big deal. But the thing is, it is because what he's saying is it is just not the case that uh it, it's not the case that he I, mean, I don't get what he's saying. You can tell my mind's kind of being spun out. But the idea is. It's not about wretched societies as in saying, um, like, just, they would take anyone. They would take, it's not about poor, it's not about uh, class, it's about the idea that we take anyone, no matter who they are, and want to give them a fair chance to build America. And, and that, there's nothing, obviously, about that that comes from, it's not about Europeans specifically, it's about the fact that we take anybody. I don't think Emma Lazarus, who wrote the poem, wrote that with that in mind. Uh, and, of course, yeah, he says, in his area, the his narrative, this somehow excludes the poem from applying to immigrants from Central America, and we've completely done away with the class-based societies in this country. Like, I don't get it. Uh, Cuccinelli said he was not prepared to make any changes to the inscription on the statue, but yesterday morning during an interview with NPR, he conspicuously added the words public charge to the poem, which is uh, a little weird. But again, the idea is that this, I think this is the way, I think this is broader, uh, broadly indicative of the way that they view this uh, this position, like th like they view immigration as something that's not for everyone. They view immigration as you can't come here if you are poor. You can't come here if you don't have a lot of resources. You can't come here if you come from a bad place. If you like, that's not the way. And they just they're just inherently less trustworthy, I think, in the Trump administration. And it comes from the top down. It really does. It comes from the top down, um, as opposed to you. We can't. Uh, we don't feel comfortable letting in people of a different uh, background here. We just don't, we don't feel comfortable. We don't trust people from uh, Mexico. We don't think they're going to be good for our country. We think they'll be up to things that aren't good, uh, and that's why we can't let them in. Uh, that, that seems to be the mindset of what he is saying here. I mean, I really don't know if there's any other way to look at it. I mean, Trump said it, now he's saying it, like that, that he puts he puts the people from Europe above the people from Central America. It's just that simple. It's undeniable. Said it literally in his quote. All right. I want to move on now to open borders. It's interesting. Um, interesting case here in, uh, I want to break down here in the New Republic. Open borders mean America great by Aaron Friedman. 
Uh, for nearly three decades, American immigration policies have reinforced the false notion that undocumented immigrants are dangerous criminals. From Bill Clinton's militarization of the southern border in 1993 to create the Immigration and Customs Enforcement after the September 11th, 2001 attacks, and now to Donald Trump's detention of asylum seekers in concentration camps, Washington has normalized the view that undocumented immigrants are a threat to America, and especially, as we heard, those from Central America. Um, it's a threat to be policed, detained, and deported. Though time and time again proven untrue, this rhetoric, echoed in a society as a whole, has become more pervasive in recent years. Most horrifically, it was on display in the manifesto allegedly posted by the gunman who murdered 22 people in El Paso. Um, in recent years, Democrats have tried to respond to the tightening news around undocumented immigrants next with tepid measures, but those such as a 2013 bill to offer a pathway to citizenship while increasing border militarization have failed to shift per- perceptions. The latest proposal in vogue among Democrats to try to undocumented immigrants uh, un- to try to uh, to try undocumented immig- immigrants in the civil legal system does nothing to stem the mass deportation that have surged over three administrations in the last two decades. The only way to safeguard the lives and livelihoods of undocumented immigrants is to fundamentally change the narrative that views them as criminals, so uh, views them as a threat. And people are going to say, oh, you break the law by coming in here in the first place. And again, the fact that we... I think the fact that we view that as a way we essentially had open borders in Ellis Island is very, again, it's interesting to see how times change, obviously, because they do, and that view wasn't always the same. Uh, But the thing is, um, we have these different changes. We have these different perspectives that are only coming up now. And I think the way that, I think it's going to be very interesting to look at, and if, I think if Americans really have a better idea of what America, uh, what undocumented immigrants are going to do once they get in this society, once they, when they come in the border, like what the majority of them actually end up doing, uh, I think it could change a lot of people's minds. There's only going to be people who say, just because you came from Central America across the border, for whatever reason for another, you're desperate. You had to, you had to work. You had to uh, feed your family. You're going to get shot if you didn't come over here. Uh, there's always going to be people, people say, no matter what circumstances, you should be in jail, you should be deported, you broke the law by coming in here. But there are, I think, some people are going to say, we should let them come in. We should give them a platform and push them up and get them acquainted or, or assimilated in this country. It's just that simple. Uh, to this end, Democrats and immigrants uh, advocates have always remained skeptic, skeptical uh, should always remind skeptical white voters that undocumented immigrants have long made America great. In fact, many of their own ancestors were undocumented immigrants, beneficiaries of an era of open borders. Uh, obviously, my grandparents came here legally as a common refrain among white opponents of immigration forms, and this is the flip side of American history. For most of its history, the United States has had open borders for white people, and obviously suddenly when other people want to come in who are not white people, the people who got here quote-unquote first, it changes a lot. Uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, everything just it shuts down like boom. There, uh, many many of our forebears, including the author of this piece, Aaron Friedman's great great grandfather, were undocumented immigrants, no different from Central American migrants today. I mean, I don't know. I mean, my grandmother came from Germany uh, at a, I think around twenty, uh, twenty or thirty, something like that, late twenties. Uh, I don't know if she was not. I personally haven't asked her. I got into a deep discussion with her about it. But, I mean, I'm sure there was some kind of sketchy kind of immigration thing going on there. I mean, it probably was... A, it, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say sketchy exactly, but 
it was definitely a lot easier for her to get in the country then than it was now. Um, just that simple. I don't know why I keep saying just that simple. I apologize. Yeah, so anyway, um, for the first century of its existence, the United States had completely open borders, believe it or not. Though it's derided as a far-left fantasy, in the 18th and much of the 19th century, the idea of someone simply coming into a new country and starting life there without any papers whatsoever was normal. In fact, it was desirable. While early American politicians hotly debated how and when immigrants could become U.S. citizens, there was no serious attempt to limit migration itself for decades. Uh, even George Mason, a supporter of greater restrictions on national naturalization, declared that he was for opening a wide door for immigrants. And it was a wide door. In 1850, the first year that information on native birth was collected by the U.S. Census, America had 2.2 million immigrants, roughly 10% of the overall population. It's part of the fabric of our country. Um, and, I mean... Even the presidency, uh, even one of the occupants of the presidency, uh, Woodrow Wilson, had an immigrant mother who came here relatively undocumented herself. Um, Open borders for people of color came to an end in 1875 with the passage of the Page Act, effectively prohibiting entry of Chinese women, followed by 1882's Chinese Exclusion Act, which banned men as well. Passed amid racist fear-mongering, the limits on Chinese immigration set the precedent for what we see today little history lesson there from Mr. Aaron Friedman. Uh, but for white men, open borders remained very much real. While the U.S. did pass laws affecting white immigrants in the 9th century and early 20th century, uh, 19th and early 20th century, uh, they were fairly limited, collecting a small tax for migrants upon arrival, banning lunatics and, carry, uh, and carriers of infectious disease, and stopping anyone unable to take care of him or herself without becoming a public charge, as we... Um, her today. I mean, I think that's about. I, I think if you look at it logically, those are probably the only restrictions that we should have on immigration. I mean, you get a small tax for migrants on arrival, banning quote unquote lunatics and carriers infectious diseases, and people who work hard, like they're going to be able to take care of themselves. They're going to be able to come in and at least have some sort of support, even if they're not able to take care of themselves. Like for example, a kid uh, comes in with uh, their mother. For example, like that's okay in my opinion. Like if they're going to come in, they're going to be able to start their lives, whatever. Uh, or for example, a adult man comes in with his mother. Like that to me is inherently like it's acceptable. And not only is it acceptable, but it's the fabric of what our country was built on. So like that is an important thing to keep in mind. The fact that open borders for a long time were very much reality. If you want to check out the full article, by the way, it is Open Borders Have Made America Great in the New Republic by Aaron Friedman. Definitely worth a read. All right, now we turn to another New Republic story by Bob Moser about Texas possibly bracing for a blue wave in 2020. When Beto O'Rourke proclaimed during the second round of the Democratic presidential debate, there's a new battleground state, Texas, and has 30 electoral college votes. Eyes rolled in unison across America. Me, I'll, I'll put my hand up there. We all heard that nonsense before. Pundits and progressives have been predicting that the minority white Texas would go blue for so long, it's been practically become, and it has really become a running joke. And while Aurora came tantalizingly close to knocking off Ted Cruz last fall, the race seemed to have all the hallmarks of a fluke. A Republican senator who would 
even Republicans can't stomach running in a strong Democratic midterm cycle against a fresh-faced liberal who eschewed all forms of conventional political wisdom and ran a campaign so novel, so tireless, and so perfectly made for social media that it became a viral, uh, viral sensation. Most people assume that Texas Democrats after Beto would resume their role as America's uh, American politics status underachievers, while Texas Republicans came uh, extended their corner century run of dominance as their national party's ideology, financial, and electoral vote stronghold. So yeah, it was like that's a lot. It's a big, big, big um, part of the Republican Party's makeup. Like, they get a lot from Texas. That's a big thing. And if they can get, if Democrats can at least make somewhat of a dent in the hold, the insane hold that Republicans have on Texas, they could really, really go, in my opinion, in a pretty far away. But as most people in Texas know, Beto wasn't blowing smoke. Uh, although Republicans have continued to routinely swat away Democrats in statewide races, they haven't lost one since 1990, while sending legions of unhinged conservatives to gum up the works in Washington. Democrats have taken control of every big city in the state over the past decade, a process that began in Dallas in 2006 when Democrats were swept into power. More important and more worrying for Republicans, that trend spilled over last year into the sprawling suburbs, long the bedrock of Texas Republicanism. And Cruz was only able to beat O'Rourke by trouncing him in 2-1 to one in rural Texas, where just a quarter of the state's voters live. Meanwhile, Democrats captured six Republican-held state house seats in the outskirts of Dallas alone and six others statewide, while giving Republicans heartburn in some of the suburban U.S. House districts where the party was routinely winning not long ago by 20-plus points. Things are changing, folks. For example, Will Hurd, who recently announced his retirement uh, having to get, I think, a recount against Gina Ortiz-Jones, if I remember correctly. Uh, he's in the kind of, a, I think, in that El Paso area. Uh, so that's a big thing. So uh, Texas Republicans are on the defensive in their national fortress, and they're both talking and acting like it. Tectonic plates shifted in Texas in 2018, says Senator John Conran, a powerful Republican who's facing re-election in 2020 with a 37% approval rating, said earlier this year. Uh, Cornyn has been sounding the alarms ever since November, warning national Republicans against complacency and spelling out dire consequences for his party if they can't stave off Democratic surges. If Texas turns back to a Democratic state, which it used to be, then we'll never elect another Republican president in my lifetime, he says, which could be interesting. Um, and what giddy Democrats are calling the Texodus for Republican members of Congress announced in short order that they will not be running for re-election in 2023 of their seats on the suburbs will likely go Democratic, adding to the two they took from Republicans in 2018. And that's, I think, where Democrats are going to really pick up a lot of stuff. And I think it's probably one of the most fragile bases of support that you could ever go to because a lot of the working class, I think, still is very much in line with uh, Republicans. And they and I think you can win the uh, working class vote. I think some places it's better almost... Although I would, I think the working class, if you really get the working class, it's going to be a lot sturdier. But some of the places, some of the districts that Democrats are going to run, they're probably going to have to go more to the suburban Whole Foods uh, kind of group, I guess you could say. Because that was where they found the most success in 2018. They did not find any success there in 2016. It's a big reason why Hillary Clinton lost, especially in areas like North Carolina and Florida. As Chuck Schumer said, uh, they tried to pick up every uh, for every working class person they lose. They pick up two suburban voters. I mean, that worked to extent in 2018, failed completely in 2016, and it's going to be interesting to see. I think some places, you're, there, it's, I think it's one or the other option. Like, you can pick. You go down the suburban Whole Foods Road, or you can go down the working class road. I think uh, 
there's definitely places where Democrats com- could compete going down the working class road and places where they'd be better off competing going down the suburban road. So Texas probably they will need to go down the suburban road because a lot of their working class there is heavily, heavily Republican because it's really a Republican state. Like they're reactionary conservatives, especially socially, which is going to be hard for them to trust a Democrat after years of just hearing no, 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 no Democrats all the time, forever, forever, forever. All right. Uh, Yeah, we are out of time, guys. That is our show. Thank you so much for listening. Really appreciate it. See you soon.